It was a very cruel scene, executed in an unusual manner. Hey, Cruel Coven. Hello, my little mini marshmallows. Mmm, mini marshmallows. Floating in the hot chocolate. Mmm, that mm-hmm. is so good. Okay. My name is Tori. My name's Katie. And this is Cruel and Unusual. The podcast. Here we are. <laughs> every, every time. Here every we are. time. We, we are, are here. We're here. We've arrived. <laughs> you have landed. You've got mail. It's 8 o'clock on a Thursday night. P.M. Yes. P.M. That's what night Ooh, means. <laughs> past my bedtime. I thought PM meant postmortem. I mean, it might <laughs> in in a different scenario. What does PM stand for? I think it's Latin. Past. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably really wrong. <laughs> I made that up. Wait, let's look it up. AM and PM. That makes me think of the a Christina um, Milian yep, song. Yep, yep. AM to PM. Postmeridium. Latin. Interesting. You learned something. Does everybody know that maybe? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Did you go to a good school? (laughs) There's a Karen out there who's going to be like, I learned that in first grade. Actually. We, okay, you guys. So (laughs) this is a true crime podcast. (laughs) This is not sure if you knew. And if you're new here, you already turned it off. So fuck that. We don't have to explain anything. Um, We don't have articles today. We don't have articles. We've got a story. We have a story. And I'm going to read it, motherfuckers. Okay. So Casey says, uh, this is all a direct quote from Casey. Okay, so you guys up for hearing about a childhood demon experience? Cool. Here goes. Summer of 1998, me and three friends are at Camp Marydale Girl Scout Camp in St. Francisville, L.A. That That's Louisiana, guys, not like Los Angeles. This is also where Myrtle's Plantation is and the Louisiana State Penitentiary for the Criminally Insane. So, like, super great place for a Girl Scout camp, am I right? Yeah, like, why? <laughs> yeah, why, everybody? Okay. I could think of, like, this I don't know, spot. one or two hundred other places that right? would be best <laughs> suitable for a Girl Scout camp. Maybe not there. So, we're there for a multiple day retreat. I think it was three nights, four days. So, we can rack up some badges, horseback riding, canoeing, camping outdoors, summoning demons, the usual shit. One of the girls who I'm still friends with, all three of these girls to this day, because this shit will change you, decided it would be fun to bring a Ouija board. (laughs) We tried it the first night. Nothing happened. One of the girls, who is still to this day hella Catholic, hated this and was not on board. Hell no, she wasn't. No pun intended. (laughs) We, We didn't even try the second night. And the last night, we were like, come on, it probably won't even work. Let's just try it again anyway, just for fun. She reluctantly joined us, and we were asking questions, and we got a response from something identifying as T, like T as in Tori. We were asking, like, is there anyone here type of questions, and the planchette kind of jerked over to the yes, and then to the T, and we asked who. All it would say was T. T T-Pain. We asked, are you dead? And it said no. So our really Catholic friend was like, okay, who is moving it? I'm freaking out. And we were all adamant that we weren't doing it. Words started being spelled rape, kill. We all got really freaked out and uncomfortable and couldn't get the planchette to go to the goodbye to close out the session. The planchette started going in figure eights, which we had read was a bad sign. And we all let go of the planchette, but it kept going. It then spun around with increasing speed and then flew across the tent. 
So obviously, we take off screaming and crying because we are terrified. We go to our Girl Scout leader's tent, and she is livid that someone brought out one of these in the first place. (laughs) Because even though she doesn't believe in it, she figured at least two of the girls were going to use it to scare one of the others. And she probably got woken up. I mean, I'd be mad. I'd be (laughs) fucking pissed. Okay, so she goes on to say, we wouldn't go back to our tent and all ended up piling in her tent for the night and then left in the morning. My very Catholic friend to this day will not talk about that experience. I know for a fact that the planchette spun on its own and across the room without any of us doing that. That's crazy, right? Wild. I, um, my uncle, who is deceased now, had a really terrifying thing with a Ouija board. Yeah. What happened? Um, he won't, he wouldn't talk about it. What I do know something about a light in Sherry and Jean's house, like a lamp Mm -hmm. levitating. We went to Minnesota when we were like 10, or I was 10 and my brother was like six. Mm -hmm. We went to a really old antique shop and we got a Ouija board. (laughs) Really old, 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 old Ouija board. Yeah. And your mom's like, pastor mom. It's like, yeah. It's like, sure guys. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Let's summon demons. (laughs) We, when my mom and dad my when I was little, my mom and dad used to fight a lot, and my mom would say, "Pack, pack up. We're going to stay with grandma." And so I had a big box in my room that I just kept for Did those you just purposes. Throw the Ouija board in. There? I put the Ouija board in there <laughs> to go to my grandma's. So yeah, that was that. Anyway, so that was fun. Fun, fun. It's time for the QOTDW. Katie, it's you have that it right. Time. I have it. This one is from Imelda. On, did you say this was from Twitter? Yeah, Twitter. Okay. From Twitter. She privately messaged it to me. She wants to know... What a buttercup. Which, <laughs> which conspiracy theory do you find the most intriguing? Ooh, yes. We've got ghosts and conspiracies, and I don't even know what you're talking about today, Mm-mm, so I'll just you stop don't. right there. Um... We were just talking about in the convo before the convo, if you're on Patreon, you'll hear us talking about um, Britney Spears. Yeah. I totally believe that something really nefarious is going yes. on. And I'm not laughing at her no. misfortune. I'm laughing at how just wild it is. And it's not that hard to fathom. Right. It really isn't. And yeah. I know that she, I think it was her and I think Jamie Lynn even recently like spoke out saying everything is fine. But what are you going to say? Right. What are you going to say? Yeah. Like, I'm being controlled or I don't know what it is. I know that there's a lot of back and forth about it and Mm -hmm. I don't know what to believe, but I do think regardless of what's going on, I think that she, it's very clear to see Mm -hmm. that there's some kind of decline going on. Yeah. I had kind of like, I never followed her on Instagram or anything like that. I don't even think I do now. And I had kind of just like forgotten about her like after she did the vegas residency and everything that was like the last thing i had heard in for years yeah and then i went on her instagram one day and it's like what is going on like it's not right yeah it's not right and like i said i keep seeing like all these tiktoks and videos and stuff and they these people really are nitpicking these videos yeah some of it seems legit yeah sometimes people just see what they want to see right they're already looking for little signs and stuff like that but some of them some of it seems legit 
Yeah. So and the Avril Levine was replaced by what's her name? Amanda? Is it Amanda? Melissa? Like that. Yeah, I don't know. I can totally see that. I can see a lot of that Hollywood's kind of shit. Hollywood's fucking weird. It really is. Holly weird. I mean, I think Britney for sure, but mm-hmm. um I've I've always been very 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 intrigued by not only JFK's assassination. Yeah. but also 9/11 and yeah. just all of that that goes into I that. I know. Um, so fucking sad. So yeah. fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. Thanks, Imelda. Okay, so do you want me to actually get into the real? Yes. Let's <laughs> okay. get into it. I don't know what it is, but I'm ready. You're going to find out. In June of 1980, two teenage sisters disappeared. 15-year-old Gina Marano, who is sometimes referred to as Gina Narano, but it, ma is right, not na. Okay. You get it? I got it. <laughs> and her stepsister, 16-year-old Cynthia. The two were reportedly runaways and had started turning towards sex work. However, one of the sources that I used that I'll mention later disputed the claim that there was any sex work involved with these two young girls. It said that there was no actual evidential claims to back that theory up, aside from what the convicted murderer later said. One of the investigators on the case said that they just really needed and wanted to make money, and that the 16-year-old Cynthia, who went by Cindy, was the one who actually did sex work, while 15-year-old Gina wasn't into it, but she would always go along with Cindy. Now, Gina and Cindy's parents, who prior to blending their families, lived on opposite sides of the U.S., got together and moved both of their families into a home in Huntington Beach, California. It's reported that the teenage girls didn't like their parents telling them what to do. They felt like their freedoms were sometimes stripped from them, like all teenagers do. Mm -hmm. That's no surprise. And that is why they ran away from home on occasion. Okay. So the two young girls had been missing for a few days before being found dead beside the freeway on June 12th of 1980. A worker had been clearing debris from the area near Forest Lawn Cemetery and stumbled upon the deceased bodies of the two young girls. They were both found laying face down in the weeds. Cindy had been shot in the head and the chest, and Gina was shot in the head. Now, Gina was wearing only a red tube top that was pulled down around her waist. And just by looking, it seemed like there was necrophilia involved. Mm. Um, But this is prior to any digging or factual evidence. Just by looking. Just by looking, yeah. Wow, okay. When they investigated and looked at their clothing, there was a long slit of the side of Cindy's pink jumpsuit that she had been wearing, like cut. Okay. And there was a detective who worked the case that said there wouldn't need to be a cut in the fabric like that had she been alive when it happened. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Neither of the girls were wearing panties at the time, but it wasn't determined if there was any sexual motivation for the crime. Now, when authorities discovered their bodies, the case immediately seemed similar to the Hillside Strangler murders. Yeah. However, the two men, Kenneth and Angelo, who were the Hillside Stranglers, had been locked up since January of 79. Mm -hmm. So there was no way that it would have been them. It could have maybe been the start of a copycat. But that's what I was thinking. Maybe like a copycat. Yeah. But we'll get into that. But it's also California in the 80s. Exactly. Jeez. It's said that although they had been missing for days, the young girls had only been dead for presumably one day, if that. The California heat had obviously sped up the decomposition process. It was June. Mm-hmm. And the bodies were already bloating when the investigation into their deaths began. 
Investigators found motor oil and a very, very small amount of blood on Cynthia on her pink jumpsuit. And Cynthia also had black burn marks that reportedly fanned outwards in a speckle pattern. This concludes that the gun muzzle was placed either up against Cynthia's chest or extremely close to her chest. Cynthia's body displayed lividity. And I know a lot of true crime buffs will already know all about lividity, so I won't talk about it for a long time. But it's so fascinating to me. And I know I sound like a nerd, but truly, it's just such Mm -hmm. a crazy thing to me. Yeah. So to put it simply, just in case you don't know what lividity is and how they could tell these things from it, we have what is known as the postmortem signs of death. So the first one is liver mortis and then pallor mortis, algor mortis, and finally rigor mortis. Rigor mortis is the one that people most commonly know that you hear about all the time Mm -hmm. that are, you know, in books and movies and TV shows and things like that, because a lot of bodies aren't found until rigor mortis is already set in and that process is already done. Okay, so the first stage, this is when lividity comes into play. Lividity is marked by the blue, purpley kind of coloring of the skin after a person passes away. This happens anywhere between only 30 minutes and four hours after death occurs. It's most pronounced between eight and 12 hours after death occurs. Basically, it happens because the heart stops pumping, blood stops circulating, and gravity pulls the blood down to the lowest point of the body, hence causing the bluish-purplish discoloration. I think lividity is just incredible because it can not only tell investigators the time of death, but at times it can also tell them the cause of death, the position that Mm -hmm. the deceased person was in when they died. So neither Cynthia or Gina had identification on them. At least none was found at the scene. So both were tagged as Jane Doe's until family members were able to positively identify them later. Due to crucial findings such as the such as the lividity and the lack of blood at the crime scene, investigators were led to believe that the young girls were killed at a different location and then just dumped randomly mm-hmm. at the location where their bodies were found. There's even more information on the whereabouts of Cynthia and Gina leading up to their murders available on the internet out there. It's reported that the two had accepted jobs at a Taco Bell, that they frequented house parties in the area, that there was a woman named Mindy Cohen who had befriended the girls. Um, She ended up basically fearing for her own safety after a fake LAPD officer called her trying to get information from her. Uh, There's a whole story about that. That does sound like the Hillside Strangler. Yeah. It's so, it's so crazy. Uh, And there's a lot of information out there, but this is already going to be a very long boy. All right. So, you can abs- I'll I'll leave some sources down below. So it's not about them. The whole thing's not about no. no about there's the girls. a lot of them. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I'm gonna. I want to make sure that I leave that in the notes so you guys can dig into that further if you want to because, um, it's wild. It's all wild. This entire case is just fucking crazy wild. I'm ready for a wild time. Okay. So let's just switch lanes for a moment, and we'll circle back to the deaths of Gina and Cindy later. There's a man named Jack who also went by John, and his last name is Murray. He was an Australian country singer who moved to Hollywood to try and make a name for himself, like a lot of people did. Like Keith Urban. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) 
Jack met a woman named Jeanette at the Jerry Lewis telethon when they were both volunteers to answer the telephone. So Jack and Jeanette were near each other during the telethon and they would talk during their breaks. So after the telethon had ended, Jack asked Jeanette to breakfast and 10 days later they got married in Las Vegas. Wow. Right? What a quick ride. (laughs) A whirlwind romance, if you will. I'll be referring to him as Jack during this entire episode, not John, just to make things clear. So Jack worked at a bar in Hollywood would call the Little Nashville. Ever heard of it? <laughs> oh, that place? Yeah. <laughs> no, me either. Okay. It said, <laughs> it said that Jack was a known liar. Hmm. He liked telling tales. He even carried a police badge Fucker. around with him. Just remember about how there was those fake calls to those. Yeah. To mid- mm-hmm. Anyway. What do you know, Joe? Yeah. Kind of strange, right? Jeanette says that he had a huge ego and that he loved that women would just throw themselves at him. Oh. After a performance in August of 1980, he didn't come home. Jeanette didn't think anything of it because sometimes if he drank too much during or after his shows, he would sleep in his van and drive home in the morning. So it was kind of typical, kind of normal. Okay. However... What is not normal is that Jack didn't come home the next morning either. Oh. Jeanette knew something was wrong right away and she reported him missing. She said it was extremely unlike him to not come home. She knew it was possible for him to stay out all night, but he always, always, always came back home. Mm-hmm. After speaking to those who were at his show and who saw Jack after his performance, it was found out that the last person that Jack was seen with was a woman named Carol Bundy. Not to be confused with Ted Bundy, although possibly just as horrific. But we'll get to that. Carol frequented the Little Nashville, and she was 37 at the time that Jack was last seen. Around closing time, it said that the two had been spotted together. Quote, she was mousy-haired and kind of large. To me, she was like a little mouse. End quote. That was from Jeanette Murray. Is she large or is she a little mouse? I know. Isn't that kind of like contradictory? (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A co-worker of Carol Bundy's named Therese Bauman described her as, quote, she was rather short. Her glasses were very thick, like she was nearsighted, extremely nearsighted. End quote. She had those really big Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. A few days after Jack went missing, his van was found two blocks from where he and Carol were last seen. There were neighbors who called authorities and complained about an odor that they were smelling, which can Uh, literally never lead to anything good. No. Jeanette received a call and she knew immediately that he was dead. Authorities told her that she did not need to go to the morgue to identify his body. Why? Later, she was told that his head was missing. Oh, no. Yeah. Jack had been beheaded, shot, stabbed, and overall mutilated. Wow. His now widow, Jeanette, was terrified to even accept packages in fear that someone was going to send her his head. Yeah. Oh, God. Carol Bundy, you remember the woman Mm -hmm. who was last seen with him, was questioned and accompanied to the interview by her supposed boyfriend, Douglas Clark. At first, there was a slight suspicion, obviously because anyone, anytime someone is last seen with someone Mm -hmm. that is dead. uh, That's the first person they want to talk to. Exactly. But there wasn't much to go off of in the interview. I'm assuming that Carol made up some story about, yeah, I was with him and then I wasn't. Right. You know, Um, the only real indicator that something maybe was wrong or maybe was up was that her reported boyfriend, Doug, was sweating profusely through his shirt. Uh, Well, Mm -hmm. but Carol couldn't be held and she was released to go. Two days after Jack was found deceased, Carol had a shift at work. 
she told co-workers at 7 a.m. during rounding all about the murder. Oh. Mm-hmm. Carol's co-workers were kind of like, um, I don't know what you're talking about, but we're going to call the authorities. Yeah, they're like, okay, glasses. Okay. <laughs> Carol ended up fleeing from her shift as one would and yeah, going back. An going, innocent person, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And she went back to her apartment and the authorities searched her locker and all over the hospital. She was a nurse. The authorities searched like her locker, her belongings. They didn't find anything at work. Um but then they decided, obviously, they would go to her apartment and mm-hmm. see if she's there. And Carol answered the door holding women's undergarments. She told the authorities that they belonged to some of Douglas Clark's victims. Oh. Her supposed boyfriend. Okay. Carol confessed to killing Jack Murray. She told authorities that her reported boyfriend, Douglas Clark, was the widely known Sunset Strip Slayer. Oh, I'm going to be telling you today all about the Sunset Strip Slayers, also referred to as the Sunset Strip Killers. Okay. I've heard of Carol Bundy, but I've never heard of the Sunset Strip Slayers. That's what you said? Mm -hmm. Never heard of them. Well, you're going to today. Carol Bundy and Douglas Clark met at the Little Nashville in 1979. Jeanette Murray remembered seeing Doug in there before, because obviously she would go to her husband's shows. Mm -hmm. And... She said that he was a really nice looking man. But thinking back on his early life, Doug traveled around a lot as a child and a teenager. His father was in the Navy, so they bounced around a lot from place to place. Doug went to the International School in Geneva, Switzerland. It was a boarding school. He had a really privileged young life. Um, Yeah, it sounds like it. While in Geneva, he started experiencing sexually with older women in Switzerland. It's not said exactly how old they were. Right. (laughs) But it said that there were women there who had no problem sleeping with younger men and that he was a good looking young man. But he clearly had a very big ego because it's reported that he referred to himself as the quote unquote. Are you ready for this? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) King of one night stands. Could you imagine calling yourself that? Doug. Honestly, Doug. You could shorten that. (laughs) Dougie. He was a smooth talker, and he was even smoother with the women. Doug ended up really latching on to this very unhealthy relationship with sex and intimacy. He was expelled from his private school in Geneva, and then he was sent to prep school in the United States. It's reported that he hid recording devices in his room there and taped his sexual experiences with women and then showed his schoolmates the videos. Gross. Yeah, bragging about his escapades. Come on. One of the investigators on the case that ends up coming up later mm-hmm. said that a lot of people who knew Doug just didn't like him. Yeah, I kind of don't like him. Yeah, it was it it was like basically just women who didn't have a lot going for them, this investigator said, that would have sex with him and be intimate with him. It's reported that even Doug himself said he was not well hung (laughs) and he didn't understand why women liked him. Oh, I don't know if that was just like hearsay bullshit. Right. Or if that's true. You never know. So Doug ended up making his way to Los Angeles and he took up work in a soap factory as a boiler operator. Okay. He didn't have a place of his own, so to combat this little issue of his, he started going out to bars to pick up women and then presumably have sexual encounters with them. But really also, he just needed a place to sleep. Carol Bundy, on the other hand, 
she did not have a great life as a young child. Her birth name was Carol Peters, and her mother and father were both extreme alcoholics. Her mother's name was Gladys, and her father's name was Charles, and Carol was born on August 26th of 1942. When she was young, it was said that she was just a little cutie patootie. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, perhaps alcohol-induced rage, or maybe just being complete shit humans, her mother would beat her, and it's not for sure known if her father beat her or would try and stop the beatings. Either way, she was at least being beat by one of her parents. Right. At only nine years old, her mother turned her back on her, shutting her out of her home, saying she wasn't her little girl anymore. At nine? Yeah. Where did she go? I don't... At well, nine? nowhere. Don't worry. Okay. I don't believe it's known exactly what, like, sparked this, mm-hmm. but it was incredibly traumatizing for Carol. Yeah. As one would and could imagine. It's Carol's father, though, who actually got her back into the home. It stated that Carol's siblings, an older sibling named Jean and a younger sister named Vicky, didn't remember that event the way that she did. So some people think she might have made it up or she interpreted it differently, but it isn't fully known. When Carol was still young, her mother passed away from a cardiac event, and things got even worse for Carol and her younger sister, Vicky. Carol was 13 and Vicky was 11, and their older brother, Jean, had already moved out of the house. Carol's father decided that he wanted his daughters to become the women of the house. Not only were they made to cook and clean and do the quote-unquote wifely duties at that time, but that isn't where it ended. Now, trigger warning for child sexual abuse. Carol and Vicky were made to sleep in bed with their father, and that eventually led to sexual abuse at the hands of their father. <sighs> you Don't worry, I'm not going to get into any details or anything like that, but I just wanted to put the trigger warning in there just yeah. in case. So the next report comes from multiple sources, and it says that Vicky and Carol would play a game of rock, paper, scissors to see which of them would have to sleep with their dad that <sighs> night. It's said that at first when Vicky would lose and have to stay with her father, Carol would be instantly relieved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? However, that relief was quickly drowned out by the screams of her little sister who would mm-hmm. plead for Carol to come help her. <sighs> it's reported that this abuse went on for right around a year. And after that, Charles met a new woman and moved her into the house. It's said that Carol's younger sister, Vicky, was prettier than her and that Carol was not very pretty herself. I hate saying things like that, so please know that's not my personal point of view. Mm -hmm. That's just what multiple people say about her. It's said that Carol was a very adorable child, but as she grew up, she hit puberty, obviously. None of us look great when we're going through puberty. No. It's said that she was a very adorable little girl, but as she grew up and she hit puberty, she became really plain. Quote, she was a lumpy and unattractive adolescent with a much prettier little sister, end quote. Ew. So Carol had a very large chest, it said, and Carol realized quickly that she was able to attract men that way. Even if she wasn't the standard of beauty, she had a chest and she used it, reportedly, to attract men and to lure men in to have sex with her. She started stealing, lashing out, going out with both teenage men and older men, and became incredibly promiscuous. We've covered many cases like this one, actually. Cases that involve child abuse, um, in particular, sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And they go on to not get the therapy that they deserve and that they need, and there's no one in their corner. And some of those children, not all of them, but some of them end up being promiscuous and acting out because they are hurting so fucking deeply inside. 
destroyed. Mm -hmm. And Carol is one of these women. This kind of led me down this horrifying rabbit hole of child sexual abuse. And I think it's really important to talk about. So I want to shed a little bit more light on it at the very end of the episode with a few statistics that I found through the CDC. And I hope that you'll listen to the end um, because it's, it's such a heartbreaking and real issue that is going on much more than you know and much closer to home than you think. And if you have a child or you know a child, if you're an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a grandparent, you need to hear it. But back to the story for now, please listen until the end. So Carol developed an intense desire of for voyeurism Mm-hmm. And she enjoyed watching her neighbors from their windows, running naked through her neighborhood, and oh. masturbating outdoors. It's said that Carol, quote, offered her body to classmates and even a school bus driver, and that helped Carol find some of the attention that she so desperately craved. She never enjoyed the physical act, but she adored the feeling of being desired no matter how fleeting, end quote. Mm-hmm. As Carol's dad, Charles, drinking, reached even newer heights, she started to run away from home. She would stay away for a few hours, days at a time, if she could. And one night when she came back to her house, she found an empty house, an open shotgun case with no gun in it, and torn up curtains and small spots of blood. That doesn't sound good. No. So she looked around in horror at her home and her eyes landed on her family cat, which was laying dead on the floor. Uh. Her father came out from wherever he had been and told her that he and Carol's stepmother had had an argument and things got heated and supposedly he decided he was going to kill the whole family. God. Carol's stepmother somehow got the gun away from him and fled. <laughs> as one should and would. Right. She left the family. She filed for divorce. And Vicky and Carol were placed into foster care until going to live with a grandmother in Michigan and then eventually to Indiana with an uncle. And then Charles ended up going back and getting both Vicky and Carol sometime later and brought them back home to Los Angeles. God. I'm not sure how he got them back. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He did. And then Carol stayed there and lived with even more abuse until she was 17 years old. Carol ended up leaving her home. She married a 56-year-old man named Leonard, um, right around 17. Wow. Mm -hmm. And Leonard was also an abusive alcoholic. Yeah. Leonard couldn't keep a job, obviously, due to his drinking, and he wanted Carol to become a sex worker to earn their income so they could survive. Carol ended up leaving Leonard and never looking back. She then met a man named Richard Geis, who reportedly wasn't actually, like, he was a decent human being. Which mm-hmm. is weird, right? For Carol. For her, yeah. He was not a heavy drinker. He held down jobs. He was a writer who wrote in both the erotic and science fiction genres. Okay. Yeah. He even encouraged Carol to write, purchasing a typewriter for her. Hmm. That's sweet. Carol ended up even selling some of her articles that she wrote. She wrote, published, and illustrated a science fiction magazine at one point. That's kind of cool, Carol. Too bad you turn into a scumbag. At the age of 20, Carol received word that Charles, her father, committed suicide by hanging himself. Uh. Richard found out that Carol was still sleeping with men for money, and Mm -hmm. he was really distraught and upset about it. But he, for some reason, still paid her way through nursing school. He loved her. They ended up breaking off their relationship, but they stayed friends, lifelong friends. Wow. And it seems to me that her relationship with Richard might have been one of the only healthy relationships that she ever had in her entire life. Yeah, it's too bad they couldn't um, work through that. 
Carol ended up moving on to her new career in nursing as well as a new man. And that man's name was Grant Bundy, which is how we get Carol Bundy. Okay. Not to be confused with Carol Brady. (laughs) They married and they ended up having two children together. And the relationship ended up falling apart just like most of her other relationships. Mm -hmm. She just didn't have a healthy attitude towards relationships and had no knowledge of safe boundaries between two people. It's really just sad. Yeah, she didn't. She never had that modeled for her. No, she had no idea. Yeah. And she also didn't get the help that she deserved. Right. It's said that Grant Bundy became violent and Carol feared for her life as well as the lives of her two children. So she ended up leaving Grant and she went to a women's shelter in January of 79. Carol didn't get along with people. I don't know if that surprises anyone listening, but she didn't feel comfortable around people. Yeah. Uh, She didn't feel safe around people. She just didn't like people, not just men, but Mm -hmm. people in general. She was let down time and time again by people who were supposed to protect her and care for her and love her. And she had a lot of past trauma from her mother, her father, years of physical abuse, Mm -hmm. of sexual abuse. um, And she hadn't been able to work through any of it. She also had abusive relationships outside of her family as well that we talked about. So, So she just didn't feel like she could relate to others. Sure. However, when she met Douglas Clark at the Little Nashville, they hit it off somehow. All right. I'm not sure if they perhaps bonded over their love and their craving of sexual intimacy or if it was something entirely different. Booze. But but either way, Carol had an intense desire to satisfy Doug, to keep him happy, and to build a relationship with him. So Doug ended up moving in with Carol, which solved his not having a place to sleep problem. Sure. And Carol and Doug started acting out all of Doug's sexual fantasies together. Okay. Carol was kind of like over the top attracted to Doug, but Doug eventually got tired of her and he told her that she was no longer sexually satisfying. (laughs) It was determined reportedly that they just needed more, right? Mm -hmm. So, or perhaps maybe Doug needed more. Mm -hmm. I don't think Carol needed more. We don't exactly know if it was an idea that they both had, if it was purely Doug's idea and Carol was just along because she liked him or maybe loved him. But she didn't want to lose him. Mm -hmm. We don't really know for sure. What we do know is that Doug had fantasies involving women, dungeons, basements, and sexual, quote unquote, slaves. He had told Carol that he had a, quote, fantasy of killing a woman during sex and feeling her vaginal contractions during the death spasms. What the fuck? Fucked up, right? Oh, okay. Circling back. Do you remember Gina and Cindy? The first two women. Okay. The 15-year-old, the 16-year-old. Okay. So if it wasn't obvious by now, we're all linked together here. Mm -hmm. It's reported that Douglas Clark is the one who murdered them. It's said that Doug picked them up on Sunset. They had been sitting on the side of the road on a bus bench, and Doug had told both of them that he wanted them to give him oral sex. Gina and Cindy were like, no, I don't want to do that. And he got pissed off. Um, basically because they rejected him, right? Right. And he said that they only wanted his money, yada, yada, yada. No shit. Right. He he ended up, I assume, allegedly forcing Cindy to engage in oral sex with him. Mm. And while she had her head in his lap, he shot Gina. Oh, my God. 
He shot Cindy afterwards and drove to a garage space that he had in the San Fernando Valley and posed to them and did other vile things to them (sighs) before dumping them on the side of the freeway where they were found in the brush. It's said that Carol was not involved in this and that she was not with him at the time. There's a lot of um, back and forth later on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about, like, these duos before and how they usually operate. On June 14th, Carol called anonymously, asking to speak to the investigators in charge of Gina and Cindy's case. Oh, Mm -hmm. let's not make it obvious here. Uh, Honestly. She gave the false name of Betsy, and then she decided to give the name Claudia, and then she got nervous about the whole damn thing and said, never mind, don't call me anything. Okay. She said that she feared for her life and that her boyfriend slash live-in lover had killed around 50 people he confessed to her and that he had started murdering people when he was a teenager she told this to the police the investigators of gina and and cindy's case what the hell did they do were they just like oh okay well so betsy slash claudia slash carol said that her boyfriend had borrowed her car and that she had found a bag with bloody blankets, white towels, and women's clothing in it. Um, and she said that the only way to stop his urge to murder young girls would be to put him in prison. And investigators were like, okay, yeah, agreed. But can we have his name? Yeah. Like, can you tell, like, what, how do I jail him? Right. <laughs> if I don't know who he is. <laughs> so. How do I jail him? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, though, the switchboard supposedly accidentally disconnected the call Mm. and Carol never called back. So it's said that Carol ended up deciding instead of reporting Doug that she would just insert himself into his disgusting and grotesque activities. Okay. It's said that Carol lured the women in, like that she made the women feel safe. It's said that she used her plain Jane looks and ways to just kind of like make other people feel like everything would be okay. Get in the car. Look, Mm -hmm. I'm a woman. It's fine type of thing, which we know people do all too often. Yeah, don't, don't get in ever that car, feel okay? safe because there's a woman there. No. Because women can be monsters too. Yep. It's said that at this point that Carol still didn't join in with Doug's fetishes. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was just kind of like luring people in. Eventually, though, she had enough of being his bystander and she switched her role up, yeah. allegedly. On June 20th of 1980, Carol and Doug drove to the Sunset Strip and picked up a sex worker named Kathy, who was around the age of 17. Carol was in the back seat. She was holding a gun, and she said that Kathy was a nice, quiet, blonde girl who at first didn't get in with them, but then she ultimately decided to accept the ride. It's said that Carol was supposed to signal to Doug if she wanted to shoot Kathy herself, but it ended up that Doug shot her himself, and Doug and Carol continued to drive. Carol later said, quote, it's a bitch trying to get clothes off a dying girl. Oh, ew. Isn't that gross? So, okay, she was supposed to give him a signal if she she decided she wanted. So they really thought about that. Uh Uh-huh. According to Carol. Beforehand, at least. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Carol and Doug ended up moving on to other victims. They picked up two sex workers who had come to California from Arkansas. The two girls were named Karen Jones and Exie Wilson. The two girls, Karen Jones and Exie Wilson, had been at a place called Connie's Restaurant, which was a hamburger diner, and it was on Sunset. They were never seen again after that night. Mm. That is until Karen's corpse was found on June 23rd behind a Burbank Steakhouse. She had been shot in the head, and she was only 24 at the time of her death. 
Karen had been going to college and even had a scholarship, but she got pregnant and dropped out, moved to California, and pursued sex work. Later that same morning, detectives were called to an alleyway where workers of another restaurant found a decapitated corpse. The fingerprints were ran through the FBI database and determined to be XC Wilson's, who showed up in the search due to her multiple arrests for sex work. Okay. Little to no updates happened until one night when a man was driving home and found a wooden chest behind his apartment building in an alleyway. He opened the chest and he could tell there was something wrapped in the clothing inside and it ended up being Exy's head. Oh my god. And her head was frozen. It's reported that Doug put Exy's head into his trunk and then went back for Karen Jones. It's said that he took Exy first, left Karen there, and then went back, got Karen, and killed her. God. It doesn't make any sense. No. um, Which is something that Doug later says, but this is what Carol said. Okay. So... According to and him, what investigators believe. Does Doug say that, that <clears throat> she did help him and she's saying that she didn't? Uh, no, not quite. Okay. All right. Not quite. All right. It's reported that Doug ended up bringing Exie's head home with him to Carol's place mm-hmm. and that Doug placed her head in the freezer. Carol ended up bringing Exie's head out each morning, putting makeup on her. What? Handing her over to Doug and then reportedly, allegedly... Doug would take her into the shower with him, and by her, I mean Exie's head. Yeah. And defile it for his pleasure. Oh, my God. Detectives questioned Carol about this later, and Carol said that she enjoyed doing this because it pleased Doug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's the invest- a lot that I could say, and there's, there's mm-hmm. just a lot I'm not going to say. So. <laughs> yeah. The investigator asked why they stopped doing it and disposed of Axie's head in the in the wooden chest. Mm-hmm. If it was so fun, why why did they get rid of her head? Yeah. And Carol said that it was a bitch to put lipstick on a frozen face. Oh, my God. In January of 1980, a young woman named Marnette Comer and her mother went to a dentist appointment. While Marnette was alone in the dental exam room, she climbed out a window and her mother never saw her again. Why? 17-year-old Marnette Comer was a runaway turned sex worker from Sacramento, California. Her body ended up being discovered, mummified, by snake hunters. Mummified. It's probable that the body had been laying there where it was discovered for about three weeks before she was actually found. It's reported that aside from shooting her, the murderer also gutted her and tried to remove one of her organs. <sighs> the bullet was able to be retrieved from Marnette's skull to be used as evidence, and the bullet ended up being a match for the murder weapon, a raven handgun, that was also used to murder the other women who were dubbed to be murdered by the Sunset Strip Slayer. Okay. After realizing that the murder weapons all match, at least the guns, authorities pulled the list of all of the Raven handguns that had been purchased in the area. It was found that two identical, aside from one being nickel-plated and one being silver-plated, handguns had been purchased by a Carol Bundy. The thing was, police weren't looking for a woman. They were mm-hmm. looking for a murderous man. That's true. Mm-hmm. Fuck. It was later said that police had been pointed in Carol's direction multiple times, but overlooked her every single time. Yeah, they did. The next body that would be found was that of Jack Murray, the Australian singer who moved to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier. He was performing at Little Nashville only hours prior to his death, and it said that Carol Bundy had actually met Jack around a year prior. She met him at a place called Valerio Gardens, and Jack was the manager at this place. It was like an apartment complex type of place. Oh, okay. 
and Carol and her two children had wandered in looking for a place to live. Jeanette, Jack's widow, said Carol would do odd things to get Jack into her apartment. Mm. She even would shove her kids' underwear down the toilet to clog it and call for Jack's help. Oh, Jesus. Right? Come on. It's said that Jack wasn't shy about telling his friends that he liked to use Carol for sex. He said that she was great in bed and he was only interested in her as a sex object and for her money. Okay, well... Carol opened a safety deposit box at a bank, and Jack said that he was after it, and actually ended up even stealing from it. There's a lot of backstory with this one as well, Jack and Carol. Mm -hmm. So was she with Doug while that was going on, all this stuff with Jack? It isn't really known. Okay. It really isn't. All right. It's like back and forth and yeah. Doug said that they were never together oh and yeah it's okay. a big it's a big to do Jeanette Jack's widow knew about his indiscretions but the two of them had children together and Jeanette had already succumbed to injuries from Jack mm-hmm. um, she had tried to bring things up before and he was abusive towards her okay it got to the point of Carol being so infatuated with him and maybe even in love with him that she offered Jeanette $1,500 to divorce him oh <laughs> Isn't that a wow. doozy of a thing? That is, yeah, that's a Would bit of a Would anyone like to offer me $1,500? <laughs> With inflation. True. <laughs> truly. It's about what? <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you. A little but bit more. <laughs> <laughs> inflation means it's a little higher. It means <laughs> so. It's puffed up a little. It's inflated like a balloon. Mm-hmm. And Jeanette was just fucking done. She was sick of Carol and her infatuation and her love and her puppy dog eyes for Jack. She was just done. Sick of these games. Honestly. So she had Jack kick her out of the apartment complex, and he did. Oh, wow. When Carol got a new place to rent, not very far from Valerio Mm -hmm. Gardens. I thought you were going to say Jeanette left him. Oh, well, I wish. (laughs) She was done. For her sake, you know. Yeah. Um, so when Carol moved to this new place, she met an 11-year-old girl that she ended up offering up to Jack. Mm. Isn't that disgusting? So fucked up. Fuck so off. Carol befriended this child, and one night when Carol was at the little Nashville, she approached Jack, told him she needed to speak with him immediately, and that she was in big trouble. She told him supposedly about the murders that Doug had committed, Okay. and that she didn't know what to do. Jack urged her to go to the authorities. She ended up slipping him a note that said if he would have sex with her, she could set him up with the 11-year-old. No. And he could have sex with her, too. Jack agreed because he was scum. Mm -hmm. And the two made plans to meet at his van later that night slash morning. When Carol and Jack met in the van, Jack immediately went he just so he stood up mm-hmm. from it's rep- actually just so you know it's reported that he had a different woman in there with him oh and then carol was waiting she got sick of waiting she knocked on the door and the other woman left wow. isn't that something all right so it said that when carol got into the van he stood up and he went back to the bench seat mm-hmm. he pulled his pants down to reveal woman's underwear that he was wearing okay and he laid on his stomach Okay. He said something along the lines of, quote, you know what I like, end quote, referring to wanting Carol to orally stimulate his back door. Okay. He started talking about the 11-year-old while Carol was doing this to him. No. And Carol said that that was the last fucking straw, even though she, quote unquote, offered is what the wording was this young child baby to Mm -hmm. him. It still pissed her off. She pressed a gun to his head. 
and shot him in the back of the head. Wow. She then went on to shoot him again, stab him. It said that she stabbed him multiple times and then slashed his bottom too. Carol. After she calmed down, she realized that the bullets in Jack's skull could be traced back to her gun. She didn't get him out, did she? No. Oh, okay. She decided to decapitate him instead. Oh. Yeah. So... Instead of leaving behind evidence, or at least the bullet evidence, Mm -hmm. she decided just to cut his head off and bring it with her. God. Carol later told authorities that Doug wanted a woman who would kill for him, and that she was happy to oblige. Carol felt like if she did this for Doug, he would love her in return. So she was like maybe in love with Jack, maybe in love with Doug, maybe in love with a bunch of people we don't really know. And... She felt like if she could just please Doug enough, he would want her or need her and reciprocate the feelings that she had. Um, And she also thought that if she didn't go to the cops about Doug, then Jack would, since she told him, Mm. and she couldn't let that happen. Carol later said that Doug wanted her to kill Jack um, and that he kind of like felt like he and Jack were rivals in a sense. And I'm wondering if she wanted them to be rivals. She probably wanted them to fight over her. Yeah, exactly. And neither of them wanted her. They wanted her money. Yeah. They wanted her for sex. Mm -hmm. That's that's what they wanted. Yeah. Supposedly. So Carol felt like by killing Jack, she would be making this ultimate sacrificial offer to Doug. It's fucked up, really. Mm-hmm. Truly, yeah. if you will. <laughs> it's said that Carol got home to their place, and she told Doug that she had Jack with her, and <laughs> Doug flipped his shit. And then Carol held up a bag with Jack's head in it, and they both had a laugh together. Mm. The medical examiner later said that it's believed that the same person decapitated both Jack Murray and Axie Wilson. Oh. And Carol reported to the police that she decapitated Jack. And Doug decapitated Exy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Circling all the way back to the beginning of the episode when I told you about how Carol showed up to work one day and she would just kind of went batshit. Mm-hmm. Authorities show up to her place. Well, they ended up arresting both her and Doug. So I kind of left off where she was holding the woman's undergarments. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, they arrest Carol and Doug both. And at the time of the arrest, Carol just went in the direction of kind of word vomiting everything to authorities. But Doug went in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. He adamantly denied doing anything, committing any crimes, being involved at all. Of course. Yeah. Authorities weren't able to find the murder weapons in Carol and Doug's apartment or in the vehicle. So they knew that they needed to check where Doug worked. Mm -hmm. But the factory that Doug worked at didn't want to shut down. So they reportedly had their employees search the building. Oh, yeah. I'm Isn't sorry. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so police were waiting to obtain a warrant to search. And the factory owners were just like, no, you're going to search. and You're going to tell them, you know, if there's something here or not. The guns, the two handguns, so the two Raven handguns that were in Carol's name, mm-hmm. ended up being found in a purse in or near a vent that had a loose brick in front of it. Doug never stopped denying his involvement. Not even in court, not on the stand. Doug was his own attorney. Which is incredibly fitting for him. That just tells me guilty right there. Okay. You you remember how he dubbed himself the king of the one night stands? And he basically just thought he was some fucking gem of a human being. Mm -hmm. Like, so he just felt like he could do the best job. I'm getting Ted Bundy vibes from him. One million percent. Okay. I want to play you an audio recording from him. It's bullshit. We've got the proof Carol Bundy copied Ted Bundy's crimes. The LAPD, Detective Orozco, says he sees no similarities between that case and this case. Yet the similarities are astounding. I sent you just a brief listing of them. 
So that's a little bit of a shocker. Yeah, what what the fuck? That is Douglas Clark saying that Carol Bundy is a copycat of Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to play a little bit more before we go on. Okay. I'm Douglas Clark. I've been on death row for 13 years. Been involved in this case since Carol Bundy accused me of her crimes, which were a copycat of this book. Since 1980, August 11th, I was 32 when I was arrested. A happy-go-lucky bachelor. Uh, chasing skirts in L.A., having a good time. I shared a condominium with a homicidal butch lesbian. She's a a sadistic lesbian serial killer. It's not a novelty. There have been somewhere around five lesbian serial killers in the United States in the last 15 years. She's just one of them. She copycatted the Ted Bundy case. She killed her partner because they had had a falling out. We're not quite sure why, but on tape to a writer, Mark McNamara, she has stated that all of her reasons... Prior stated reasons for killing Jack Murray are false. She's taken the reason she killed him to her grave. We know the reason, we believe. The reason was they were out not only molesting a nine-year, uh, 11-year-old girl in his van, they admit all that, everybody knows that, but they were killing girls in that van. And if you've read the Head Press article, there's a three-inch three chunk of scalp with blonde hair attached found in the van. Okay, we know who killed these girls. Jack Marie and Carol Bundy killed these girls. She murdered him. She admits that alone. She admits she decapitated him, stabbed him 26 times in the back or so, chopped off his head and took his head away. Oh, and slashed off his buttocks for good measure. She committed this crime while she was, she shot him the first time. First of two shots, she says. Well, she had her tongue in his anus. It's called analinctus. These two claim... She, she claims these two had no relationship after January of 1980. Claims I was her lover after January of 1980. But we have her and the 11-year-old girl at, who testified about it in his van having three-way sex in August, August 1st and 2nd. We have Carol with her tongue in his anus and shooting him in the head and cutting his head off August 4th. Yet they're not even related. They're no relationship, no friendship. We have letters from her that the widow gave up to the police saying she wanted him to be her lord and master. Well, come time when they're not getting along, for whatever reason it was, she whacked him in the same van they murdered the girls, most of the girls in. Some of the girls were killed in her cars as well. Blood evidence proved that. She could not testify or gain a deal for her life back when she was caught for his murder. By testifying against him. You cannot in America testify against a dead man. It just doesn't work. So she was caught for his murder. And that's an interesting sidebar we have to get into. I was at home and everybody admits it. The DA admits it. Everybody admits it. I was at home in my bed. A go-go girl was in Carol's bed that was staying at the condo at the time. The go-go girl had an epileptic seizure in the middle of the night. Woke up, bit her tongue, blood running down her face. I woke up and called the paramedics. The paramedics in America bring the cops with them. The cops show up. Carol isn't around. Nobody knows where Carol is. There was my accidental alibi for the murder she was framing me for of Jack Murray himself. So when that fell apart, the cops came to get her on the 10th of August to question her about it. They were coming to arrest her for that murder on August 11th. That's all proved fact, documented, nobody argues with it. They were coming to arrest her for the murder, decapitation, butchery of her lover, John Murray, on August 11th in the morning. She beat him to the punch and confessed she was with Doug Clark, the serial murderer of the Sunset Slayer case. 
Carol Bundy's doing double life murder charges for murder she could not frame me for. Jack Murray's and Jane Doe 28 Kathy. The rest of the murders are all scripted right here in page 1 to 34 of this book by Bantam. A little cheap supermarket special that came out right after Ted Bundy was arrested. Wynn and Merrill are the authors. Carol wrote to us and told us to get this book. You'll find it very interesting. We have that letter. It's in court. We got the book. We read it. The dates are the same. June 1st, George Ann Hawkins, Brenda, Brenda Ball, June 1st, Ted Bundy murders her. I don't have this stuff handy because it's all been tampered with by the goddamn mailroom here. But June 1st, Ted Bundy murders Brenda Ball. June 1st, Carol Bundy says Marnette Comer died. It was actually May 31st, the night of May 31st, it appears. She lied about the date to match the book. June 11th, the next murder in the book, Ted Bundy murders George Ann Hawkins. Next murder in this case, Carol says they tried to shoo away one girl that was standing with another girl to kill one. What half-wit killer drives up in broad daylight, noon on sunset, she says, or whatever, shoes away a witness to the vehicle and the occupants of the car, picks up the other girl and kills her. You don't try to do that. The reason she tried to claim they were shooing away one girl and only wanted one murder on June 11th is because the book only called for one murder. But the next murder is a double murder. Does she say they tried to shoo away the second girl then? No. She claims they went to Hollywood, picked up Exie Wilson, drove her all the way over the Hollywood Hills to Ventura, killed her, dropped off her body, decapitated it, took the head away, drove all the way back to Hollywood, over the hills on a two-lane little road, Drive all the way over to Hollywood again, pick up her friend, murder her, Karen Jones. Drive her body all the way over to NBC Studios, Warner Brother Lots, around in there. Drop her body off. Mind you, going further from Hollywood towards the Burbank apartment that Carol had rented. She drives all the way back to Hollywood again to hunt for a third girl, she said, but couldn't find her. Where do we find this story? Find it right in here. Only we find the truth in the Ted book. We find Carol Bundy doing the impossible. The times of the phone calls, the shots, the screams, and the tires, and the dogs barking, uh, a la O.J. Simpson case, prove that it could not have happened that these two girls were both singly picked up and a third attempt made in this case. They had to be picked up together, taken over the hill, killed and dropped. But we couldn't understand any of why any of this was happening or how it was happening until we read the book. Ted Bundy went to Lake Sammamish, Picked up one girl, broad daylight, took her away, murdered her and decapitated her, took her head away. That's Denise, uh, Janice Ott. It's either Ott or Nasland. Janice Ott and Denise Nasland died that day. He picked them up one at a time at the park. He drove them away, decapitated one of them, which linked up to Exie Wilson's decapitation in this case. Only one decapitation of a girl in this case, only one in the book. So he picks them up one at a time, takes them away and murders them and goes back for a third right here in the book. But he fails. But what he doesn't fail to do is give him his name, Ted, and give him a description by visual witnesses seeing it of his car, a VW. The headlines become the Ted VW case. Carol can't show them the car, the van or the vehicle, whatever she's using. It's too risky. She can't give them the accurate name necessarily. So she calls police on June July on June June fourteenth, I'm sorry. Without my data here, it's a little difficult. June fourteenth, coinciding right after the uh, 
right as this book is saying that these events are starting to unfold in the book, she calls police. We have a tape recording of the call by the police. She gives John and Red Plymouth. Okay, so if you, uh, you guys, like, I don't know. It's so difficult for me. Okay, number one, up until now, I've kept this little part a secret. Mm-hmm. But Doug's, so he adamantly denies any part of it. Is there any evidence linking him to it? It kind of sort of, yeah. Okay. But also not really. Oh, shit. Honestly. So, All right. um, Doug and his lawyers and his team, they said that Carol Bundy became obsessed with Ted Bundy and copycatted his murders. Or did he? Exactly. <laughs> so essentially what they're saying is June 1st, Ted murders Brenda Ball. Mm-hmm. June 1st, Doug says, Carol and Jack murder Marnette Comer. But this is years later. Yes. June 11th, Ted murders Georgianne Hawkins. June 11th, Gina and Cynthia are murdered. It said that they that Carol only wanted to murder one of them, but mm-hmm. they were like a package deal. They were the sisters. Mm-hmm. June 14th, Janice Ott and Denise Nasland are murdered by Ted Bundy. June 14th, somewhere around here, Exie and Karen are murdered by Carol and supposedly Jack. Mm-hmm. June 14th, someone known as Melanie called the police and said that she was afraid that her lover might be the killer. She said she was scared. June 14th, that is when Carol called, got disconnected from the switchboard, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> the similarities are wild. Yeah. Wild, 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 wild. Yeah, that's strange. <sighs> and the <laughs> their last names are Bundy. Yeah. It's just weird. So Doug adamantly anise, <laughs> denies all of it. A lot of people say, though, that he had relations with that 11-year-old girl. He denies that as well. He says that Jack and Carol did that. Now, when it came to the case of Cynthia and Gina, going all the way back again, Carol told the story about Doug shooting both of the women, taking them to that garage that he had near the San Fernando Valley, committing vile acts of necrophilia. However, no semen was found as evidence other than a small amount on Cynthia, There was no sign of force. There was no sign of tearing, no apparent bruising from trauma. Mm -hmm. The semen didn't match Doug. The semen matched Jack. Also, Carol said that Doug committed these acts alone. She wasn't there when Cynthia and Gina were murdered. However, some investigators believe that the women were just tossed onto the side of the freeway, like Mm -hmm. from a moving car. And that would mean two people would need to be there. Right. That's true. So whether it's Doug and Carol, Carol, and Jack. But then it was later said that there was a bloody footprint in that garage and that that matched Doug's. Oh. There's so much conflicting evidence. So next, Exie Wilson. Remember how it was said that they kept her head in the freezer? Mm -hmm. She did it up. There was vile behavior going on with it. Mm -hmm. The head was still frozen when investigators found it in that wooden box in the alleyway. Right. Still... A small amount of semen was able to be found, and it belonged not to Doug, but to Jack. Now, Jack's widow, Jeanette, came forward and mentioned that Jack had two handguns, too, that he purchased them illegally on the down low because of his immigrant status from Australia. Mm -hmm. And one of the guns was a 9mm, and the other was a small caliber handgun, the same type of weapon linked to the murders in all of these young women. Somehow, the 9mm that had no correlation at all to the case was in police custody. However, 
the paper trail that confirms that authorities had the small handgun, the one that was linked to all of them, mm. disappeared. Widely Convenient, spoken, mm-hmm. huh? It's widely spoken about that there was an altering of evidence, a cover-up going on of some kind by authorities. Yeah. And an officer who was in charge of the search was actually accused of altering a witness testimony and of perjury as well. Wow. So how do you even get anywhere? Mm -hmm. So during sentencing, during the trial, during all of that, Doug represented himself. Yeah. He was visibly angry, kicked tables across the room, screamed vile things at the judge. He acted like an actor on a stage. And in the end, he was sentenced to death. Wow. Carol was offered a plea bargain in order to get her to give up information on Doug, who they basically just slapped this on. Yeah. You know. With so little evidence. Yeah. A death sentence. She ended up receiving life in prison in exchange for offering up all of this information against Doug. Okay. Jack's widow said, quote, I don't think Carol was born to be evil. I think she was created to be evil. End quote. Carol Bundy died of heart failure in 2003 while in prison. Wow. And Doug still says he's innocent. He maintains complete and total innocence despite any evidence that does come up against him. It's wild. Huh. It's so fucking wild. I feel like, I mean, I don't really know this for sure, but it seems like a lot of them will later on admit. Yeah, for sure. Whether it's to get a deal, to get off death row, you know. Right. I don't know. Isn't it just crazy? It's like, so this whole time, like, we're kind of trusting Carol. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of, like, almost feeling bad for Carol in a way because of all she's been through. But then she murders people, you know. And then at the end, you hear from Doug. And he's telling us about this fucking copycat timeline. Yeah. And it's like, who do you believe? Who right. do you trust? Who did right. it? Who didn't do it? I think, was it Carol and Jack? Was it yeah. Doug and Carol? Was it all of them? Right. Who did what? I'm kind of leaning towards they've, they all three played yeah. a part in at I, least one, if not a lot of them. And I don't know who did it, but I think they were copying Ted Bundy. One million percent. Whoever it was. The same dates? Yeah. It's crazy. And the phone call. Yeah. So crazy. I do want to just really quickly, since there was a lot of child abuse, sexual, physical, mental going on in here. And you know how I said I kind of like spun myself down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to really quickly read a couple of statistics that I think are helpful. These are all direct quotes from the CDC. Mm -hmm. Females exposed to child sexual abuse are at a 2 to 13 times increased risk of sexual victimization in adulthood. Individuals who experience child sexual abuse are at twice the risk for non-sexual intimate partner violence. The odds of attempting suicide are six times higher for men and nine times higher for women with a history of child sexual abuse than those without a history of child sexual abuse. About one in four girls and one in 13 boys experience child sexual abuse at some point in childhood. Mm-hmm. 91% of child sexual abuse is perpetrated by someone the child or child's family knows. That was the main thing that I just kind of wanted people to take away. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I always try and like, if we're talking about something heavy like that, if we can give information. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think so many people do still think that, you know, you keep your child safe by keeping them with their family and right. keeping them 
close to home and things like that. But that happens so often with family members. So I just think that it's so important that everyone be aware and on guard. And as much as you think you know someone, you don't. You don't. It doesn't matter if they're a family member, a best friend. It's people are capable of disgusting and vile and shocking things. Mm -hmm. And you need to protect your children. Yeah. Do not ever think, not my family. Yeah. Or not in my town, not in my house. Yeah. One of the people that I've been following closely for a long time, Erin Marin, she founded um, Aaron's Law and she's working really hard to get it passed in all 50 states. There's only a handful that she hasn't. I was going to say, how many yeah. is she at now? A lot. Yeah. I'm not sure off the top of my head. But her story is that she was being sexually assaulted mm-hmm. as a little girl during family Christmas. Yep. Because the parents, you know let all the kids go play right and it was by like a teenage cousin right Aaron's law so it requires schools to teach personal body safety to pre-k through 12th grade she's the founder it's the first law in the U.S. that requires every year so students are taught this every single year right and it's resulted in so many kids coming forward so many arrests being made you talk about it all the time Mm -hmm. it's so important to and I think, you know what we actually talked about during the Michelle Blair episode? Mm-hmm. There's a right and wrong way, I think, to talk to your kids yeah. about things like this. And you have to do it delicately, but yeah. with enough um, passion that they understand right. and what it, you're doing. And it actually, at. it honestly starts as babies by using the correct anatomical terms yeah, right. for their body parts. Right. And just reinforcing safe touch and unsafe touch right. from the start. Staying quiet about it can perpetuate it. Right. Exactly. So I just wanted to throw those statistics in there. And I'm Mm -hmm. also going to have it linked in the show notes. So if you have ever gone through something like that, if you're Mm -hmm. wondering how to talk to your kids about it, there's going to be some information in the show notes linked below. And I'll try and remember to share it in the group too on the release day for the episode. (sighs) All right. I don't even know what to think about that. I know. (laughs) It's crazy. That's one of those cases that just make you feel really gross. Yes. And, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. All the entire around. time. I, it, this was like a very deep dive for me. Mm-hmm. And the entire time I was researching it, ho, 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 ho. Yeah. It really just like took me for a spin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on okay. from this case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Goodbye, Carol Bundy and Doug and Jack. Just bye. I'm going to leave you in the past dead. now. <laughs> Okay, are you reading, watching, listening, anything at all? Um, I think I told you this the other day, but um, I've been catching up on 911. Oh. <laughs> Is it cheesy? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure. Is it unrealistic? Absolutely. <laughs> Is it entertaining as fuck? 100%. Are there hot men in uniform? There are, but you know, I live for Angela Bassett. Yeah. On there. <laughs> I love her. She's a badass cop Yeah, on there, and she's just my absolute favorite because it came back. Yeah. It was on hiatus or whatever for a while, and then COVID. Um, so we caught up on the, the ones that we hadn't seen, and then all the new ones. And they actually are putting COVID into the show, like oh, how gosh. they're dealing with it. And I actually love that they did that. Yeah. I know a lot of people are like, I don't want that in my, my entertainment. But it was kind of, it was interesting yeah, to see like how way. these characters are dealing with it. Like the one girl's pregnant. And the, yeah. the father doesn't, hasn't been there 
the whole time, the whole pregnancy, because he's afraid of getting her sick. So oh, wow. It's just interesting to see, like, what what yeah. they do with it. And like it's, Ryan Mur- it's Ryan Murphy, American Horror Story guy. Yeah. So, you know, it's entertaining, of at course. the very least. Uh, that's about it, though. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> well, okay. So, I read the book for the case mm-hmm. today. And that obviously I'll have that link in the show notes. That was called Doug Clark and Carol Bundy, the horrific true story behind the Sunset Strip Slayers. Okay. That's by Nancy Vasey and Ryan Decker. I'm listening to a book called The Other Misses by Mary. Oh, yeah. I already talked about that one. Yeah, you did. I did listen to today um, the new My Favorite Murder, they, The History of Lobotomies. Oh, which is really interesting. Yikes. I did listen to MFM's last mini sewed mm-hmm. because you told me to yeah and i thought i listened to another one but i can't remember what it was i don't know i couldn't tell you i don't know either if i remember i'll try and talk right. about it sometime okay <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh you guys it is um let me tell you the time please Ten forty-five p.m mm-hmm. it is hours past my bedtime it's hours until my bedtime honey <laughs> <laughs> it's only um. <laughs> not long before my awake time all right guys send us your stories send us an email at cruel and unusual the pod at gmail.com our instagram is at cruel and unusual the pod i tweet at cruel <laughs> unusual pod that was the most unenthusiastic is that a word unenthusiastic <laughs> I tweet that I've ever That was heard. the worst I tweet I've ever done. Out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. I tweet! <laughs> <laughs> Did that, was that better? That was better. Okay. Join our Facebook group. That is Cruel and Unusual, colon, the group. And go to crueltinkmedia.com for com. merch, um, Patreon stuff, and stuff about our books. Is that everything? I don't, probably not, but it's fine. I think we're good. Okay. Tori's dead to the world. I'm dead to the world. We love you. Okay. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.